This is your coffee break. Hi, friends. I am back again this week, and I have with me author and grief counselor, or excuse me, bereavement expert, which I feel is better to say, Julia Samuel. She is here to grace us with her presence and to have a discussion about writing and grief. Julia, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be on your show. Hi. Hi. Hi to everybody listening. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Julia, I would love to just get a little bit of insight on you. I have your bio here, but I also kind of like people to introduce themselves in their own words, tell a little bit about their story. Um, So if you wouldn't mind indulging us. So I'm a psychotherapist. I worked in the British NHS, which is the public sector um, mental health side, supporting families specifically when a child died or when a baby died. And I did that for about 25 years. And I helped start and find a patron of a charity called um, Child Bereavement UK. I helped establish and launch it. And um, I still work with Child Bereavement UK. So that is my particular specialty, which is a, a very kind of complex one. But I, I also work with actually anybody and a lot of people who are grieving um, for different losses. And what I very powerfully felt through my kind of 28 years of working is that the people would come to me and they, because they had no understanding of what grief was likely to be like and what was normal, they would often turn on themselves and attack themselves because they felt like they were failing or they were making too much of a fuss or they were doing it wrong and that somehow they should be jumping out of this and getting on with their life and bouncing back to normal, which is the kind of the super positive, um, you know, um, attitude that, that people keep telling them, you'll get over it, you know, time's a great healer, all of those expressions. And so I wrote this book, Grief Works, because I wanted people to have a real understanding of what it's like on the inside when they're grieving. And it's for both people who are grieving and for the friends of family so that they can understand those around them. And it's had a big impact, I'm happy to say. I love speaking with writers and authors whose work um, kind of serves a greater good and a greater purpose. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk with you today. For so many people, this is such a a heavy topic. How did you get into this as your career? What drew you to it? I think it was a a mixture of things. Um, Both my parents had major losses. The siblings and their parents were all dead by the time they were 25. And they were never talked about them. Um, they, I don't think, really ever grieved them. Mm-hmm. And there were these white photographs around our house of these sort of shadowy figures who I didn't quite know who they were. I knew one was my grandmother, but I knew no stories. And I think when I spoke to my mum, you know, when I was in my mid-twenties, and she told me about the death of her brother who was killed in the war, and she talked as if she was the 17-year-old sister. It was like untouched in her. She'd never spoken about it. And I think that had a, a big impact and it kind of helped me understand, you know, a lot of aspects of, of my kind of early life. And then I met different people and, and went to therapy groups, which I found interesting. And from there, I found myself as a volunteer at St. Mary's, the hospital where I, where I worked for so long. And so it was sort of coincidence, unconscious processes. And something that I was just instinctively drawn to. I, I like connection. I like meeting people. I like knowing what's going on inside them much more than I'm interested in what they look like or 
what their achievements are. And I mean, this is the job for that. You talked about sort of the cliches that we deal with, like time as a great healer. And you even alluded to the fact that um, there's sort of maybe a toxic positivity to some of this. Can you can you walk us through um, a little bit about maybe some of the jargon and some of the cliches that we maybe use as a society? I think we I think we're all frightened to death, and I think we when we are sitting opposite someone or talking to someone that's grieving, they send off signals that are distressing. You mm. you can feel their distress in your body, so I think all of us feel quite disturbed by that. And I think we seek a fast-track solution. We want to be able to fix them. We want to be able to make it better. And I think in the 21st century in particular, that's what we expect. You know, up until the beginning of the 20th century, death was very, very much part of life because death rates were so high, medicine didn't really work. So people had a much clearer and I, I can, death was part of life, so it didn't frighten them. It wasn't hidden away in mortuaries. People didn't go into hospitals and be on intensive care units for weeks on end. And so now I think we're so unfamiliar with it. We want to kind of fix it or run away. And I'm all for positivity. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. You know, if you think positive, it's more likely to to be okay, but grief is a has a particular process of its own that you can't think or can't think your way out of it. You can't say, I'm gonna wake up today, I'm gonna kick this grief in the ass. So I think we have to respect its natural process and my the message in my book is that we need to find ways of supporting ourselves through it. And that pain is the agent of change. Pain is incredibly uncomfortable, but pain is the only thing that lets us know that something very different has happened. Pain is the thing that forces us to recognize this person that we love has died. Because otherwise, you know, if we keep imagining the person is still alive, I mean, people, you know, when someone first dies, most people say it feels surreal, I don't believe it, it doesn't feel possible, I can still see him, I can still smell him, I'm still talking to him. And it's through the pain that they incrementally adjust to the reality, and that's the task of mourning, is to face the reality that this person is not coming back. What a beautiful way to put that. I'm curious if you would be willing to, just because this is a concept that I think is foreign to so many of us, could you walk us just very briefly through um, what the grieving process might look like? And I know with the caveat that you said maybe there is really no normal grieving process. There's two sides of it. So one side of it is that that normal process will be affected by your relationship with the person that died, what that relationship was like the circumstances of the death, so whether it was a sudden death or an expected death, your own history of losses, so if you've had many more losses, you're already more vulnerable. And the biggest predictor of a good outcome is the support you have at the time and following the death. And your personality type, you know, how you are naturally, or more naturally robust or more naturally fragile. And so that is what goes into the mix when someone dies. And I think the process, you know, I I find the phases and stages helpful in the way that you kind of, it gives you a name to feelings, you know, the anger, denial, bargaining, all of that. But what's unhelpful is that it, it 
it's often very mechanistic that people sort of say, oh, well, I'm in the anger phase. And people can have all of those things in half an hour. They can be furious. They can be in denial. They can say, God, I'll do this. You know, I mean, you can, it's not clear cut like that. So the, the model that I like is something called the dual process, which is you have loss orientation, which is you need to think about the person that's died, you emote and you feel and you grieve. And you have restoration orientation where you have hope for the future. You do things that distract you, that take consciously take you away from your pain, like going for a walk or watching a movie or seeing a friend. And you oscillate between the two. You move between the two. So you allow yourself time to feel sad and then naturally allow yourself to have a break from the sadness. And as you do that, you incrementally adjust to this new reality that you don't want. And I think part of the process is facing the, the fact that they've died and, and that's irreversible, but also this idea that the relationship continues, that the person has died but the love doesn't die. So ways of continuing the relationship, wearing a piece of their jewelry, you know, or making their favorite pasta, or planting their favorite flowers, or listening to a playlist that you know they love. And that, so, and people talk to the person that's died, you know, they say, ask their mum, is he the guy I should marry? You know, they, they ask them, so the person lives on inside them, but it, you can't do that without having done the kind of reality that they've done, because otherwise you go a bit batty. And your book, Grief Works, is sort of engineered to help people through this process. Yeah, so it's, it's stories. It, I think what is the most personal is the most universal. So, you know, I chose people who I was working with, and sometimes there were sort of two or three case studies put into one. So the stories a very unique and individual that this type of person, the circumstances, this death, this relationship were very unique, but often what they feel and what they did and how they processed it is very universal. And it was about my relationship with them and how their effect on me. And I divided it by the relationship with the person that's dying. So there's a section on a partner dying, a parent dying, a sibling dying, a child dying, and facing your own death. And in each section, there's reflections about research, what we know about that particular relationship and statistics and things like that. So you spoke a little bit earlier about your mother, whose brother who had died, and you sort of mentioned that she had held this story, these stories within her and not let herself talk about them. Our main audience for this show is writers and aspiring writers. And I'm very, very interested in the role of storytelling in grieving. Yes, I mean, I think what I talk about with grieving and, in a way, um, the, the storytelling, the integration of the two, is in order to find a way of coming to terms with what has happened, people have to find a narrative inside themselves that they can find a way of living with. So they need a beginning, a middle, and an end of what happened. So if there's any piece of the jigsaw that's missing, something about the circumstances of death or what a doctor did or a body they didn't see or somebody who won't talk to them or any anything that's missing, they become obsessed by, and that can derail the grieving process. But if a person, through talking to a great friend, talking to a therapist, or writing it down, and I think all of the you know journaling or writing their narrative is certainly as helpful as talking. 
by putting their feelings with the facts and finding a narrative that they kind of can understand for themselves helps um, with that kind of shattering chaos that grief brings. Because it you can you can never kind of accept what has happened. It may never make sense, but if you have a clear narrative that you know this is what happened, you can begin to adjust to it. You can begin to accommodate it, and that is the process. And my mum never did that. So hers was like a live video. She remembered being Edinburgh Cookery School. She remembered someone coming in, calling her out, telling her her brother Tony was killed in Arnhem. She went back into the classroom, she didn't cry, she didn't tell anybody, and she never spoke about it again. And he was her favorite brother. And so when she told me, it was like she was 17 and she'd just been told the news. It was totally unprocessed. She hadn't been able to integrate what had happened into her understanding of herself. And so that meant a lot of her emotional energy was used up in defending against that. So your capacity to engage in life is shortened. Because if you cut off pain, you incrementally cut off joy. You can't just choose to cut off pain. So your bandwidth of experience, experiential feeling is narrowed. And, th and that was true of my darling mum. I mean, you know, she had a perfectly good life. I'm not saying she had a miserable life, but I think it had a big impact. Um, is a lot of what you deal with grief, but also fear? I mean, what does dealing with fear look like for you and the people you work with? That's a really good question. I mean, I think grief often feels like fear. So people feel it as kind of butterflies. They feel anxious. If it's a very sudden death, they often get panic attacks for a long time. Um, so I think it feels like something, you, your system goes into fight or flight. And so it often feels like something bad is about to happen, although it's happened. And one of the things, you know, I tell anybody I see is that one of the things that helps you most when you feel like that is exercise. Because if you fly, if you get your heart rate up, you've told your body that you've flown and it incrementally winds down and reduces the cortisol and increases the dopamine. Which, so people feel calmer. And then when you feel calmer, you're more able to deal with this sort of onslaught of complex feelings. When you're feeling, when you're hyper, your neofrontal cortex, the part of your brain that processes information, goes offline, and your fight or flight, your amygdala, is super online. So you're only there looking for danger. So you behave constantly as if something terrible is going to happen, but nothing gets processed. And if you stay like that, don't do any of the work, don't process it. You know, the thing I say is the things that you do to avoid the pain are the things that do you most harm. So you may feel so awful like that, you drink, you take drugs, you, you work, you do anything or have tons of sex with strangers or whatever it is, you anesthetize the pain, but of course it kicks in even higher, so it sets up an incredibly negative cycle. You asked earlier if I would go through and, and edit this. Um, you are so eloquent and so beautifully spoken. I, I doubt we will have to edit you at all. This is, this is so beautiful. What is English accent that's fooling you? Maybe. Oh, I don't think it's fooling me. I think it's like enhancing. So it's like bringing you even up a level more. It's so beautiful. 
you do this work, um, you, you help people, you've, you've written this book. What is your favorite part about what you do? Contact with others, hmm. connection with others, the kind of meeting, um, that sense of intimacy, the knowing, being known. And, you know, I feel as therapists, plants come to teach us. You know, we, you know, I'm as much, I don't know if I'm exactly a wounded healer, but I think all of us do this. I don't think anyone does something to support other people without in some way having some need in themselves. I don't think it's ever just entirely altruistic. I don't actually believe in altruism, but I think you do it for yourself. And that's my rewards. My rewards is these amazing relationships, which feel very true, and they're very honest, because, I mean, people can come and kind of make stuff up to therapists, but really that they know it would be a waste of their blooming money. So, you know... (laughs) And they're not putting on a show. So you see much more of what people are really like. And that's incredibly um, rewarding. And you see people change. You see people find a way of living what they never believed they could ever find a way of living. I think people do that naturally. I don't think everyone needs to go to a therapist. I think they, if they talk to friends, if they find ways of expressing their grief, it's by no means the only thing they need to do. So you wrote Grief Works. Is that sort of serving others? Have you heard anyone come back and say, oh my gosh, this book has, has helped me heal? Or have you heard anything like that come back from the book that you wrote? Oh my goodness, yeah. I've had hundreds and hundreds of emails. Um, and people that come to festivals and um, events that I do. And it's, that's been incredibly rewarding. I mean, in some ways it's quite hard to take in. But... You know, every time I get an email, I—I I mean, I wrote the book because I—I I did to begin with. I didn't even know I had anything to say, and then I felt angry, so I felt I did have something to say, and I did it in the hope that people who can't see me or don't see me would feel that they had me in the room with them, that they knew me, um, that I was open in the book, and they felt that I was kind of with them, and I—I I think to some extent that has true I think people feel like they know me from the book which is a that's a really nice thing that is really lovely you talked about feeling like you didn't have anything to say in a book Um, obviously you do what made you decide I'm gonna do this well an agent um, approached me after she listened to me on the radio and said obviously lots of people have asked you to write a book and I said actually no one's ever asked me (laughs) and um, and I didn't want to and I think everything's been said and she was really good and she said I mean you could do and I said it's like homework it's like homework forever doing a book and um she said well you could do a proposal which is like short homework and and if you don't get in the office then that's fine but if you do then then um it's worth going for it and I I I literally didn't think about it for six months and then I I woke up one morning and I thought I'm going to swear, it, have a go. And I, and I just, I spent a month over the summer um, doing the proposal. And I, I tell you, I rang someone who was an editor who I didn't know. I mean, she's a, someone who helps people write. And she was incredibly encouraging. And if she hadn't been encouraging in that conversation, I don't think I would have done it. So if that agent hadn't written to me, and said, you have a voice, and you, you're very clear, I think you should write a book. I wouldn't have thought of it. 
And if this other wonderful woman hadn't said, you can, you know, I can tell by the way that you're speaking that you can, that you have a, that you can write, just write it down, just get a piece of paper and write everything you're thinking off the top of your head. And that's what I did. And then she helped me kind of organize it. And then it came very, very quickly and very easily. The title came very quickly. I literally just I kind of woke up with it one day and the structure came incredibly quickly. Um, and so it was kind of sitting in me, but it needed other people to give me the confidence, basically. Going back to the community, the interconnectedness, the relationships. I love Being that. That, that. That you can do it for something that feels quite scary that you kind of give to the gift of other people who are cleverer than you or, you know, all those things I can't write, I, I'm not clever enough, I've got nothing to say. Um, they encouraged me and said, just have a go. You know, what have you got to lose? And that was great. So if people are interested in picking up a copy of GriefWorks or uh, connecting with you online, uh, what do they do? Where do they go? So they can buy the book certainly from Amazon or any online site. Barnes & Noble, I think all the main bookshops in the U.S. have, have my book. Um, they can also get it from my website, which is www.griefworks.co.uk. And through there, there's a contact where they can email me, and I always reply to emails. I love it. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're so beautifully spoken, but you're also very accessible, and that's um, that's a very rare thing. So thank you so much for sharing your voice with us today. Thank you so much for the work that you do for people, helping them grieve and helping them heal. Gosh, you're doing just wonderful things. Yeah, thank you. And um, thank you for asking such good questions. Thank you. Love me. It's lovely to meet you too, Julia. I've had a wonderful time talking with you this morning, and I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day.